Hello, beautiful people. My guest today is Steve Schlafman, and Steve is a professional certified coach, an angel investor, facilitator, speaker, former operator, and a recovering VC. That's according to his bio. And he currently operates High Output, a boutique leadership development company that's based in New York. I got introduced to Steve because he published something called The Ultimate Annual Review. And this is something that I completed earlier in the year. And it was a really helpful way for me to put everything that happened in 2020 in perspective of different dates and different times. And we spoke about it at the end of this conversation. But it's a really great document, which even if you're not listening to this at the beginning of the year, at the end of the year, doesn't matter when you're listening to this. The ultimate annual review can give you questions to help guide your life. And I highly recommend it. You could find that at annualreview.life. And we spoke about that. But in this conversation, we also spoke about coaching and how that has played such a big role in Steve's life from the perspective of a coach, as well as the perspective of getting coached. And This is obviously an area that Steve's really passionate about and spends a lot of time thinking about. We also dived into meditation and we reflected back on the earlier parts of Steve's journey in terms of meditation. And we opened the conversation up with a great talk about identical twins and how that has impacted Steve's life. Overall, great conversation. Steve fills me with so much joy and so much love and I'm so grateful for him for having this conversation with me. And I had an incredible time. I hope you have an incredible time listening as well. If you'd like to give me feedback or thoughts about this conversation, you can do that at Hey Danny Miranda on Twitter. And I'm looking forward to hearing from you. But until then, this is my conversation with Steve Schlafman. Interesting people, thought-provoking conversations, nutrition for your brain. Journey through the minds of the world's top performers and discover what it really takes to achieve your highest version. This is the Danny Miranda Podcast. In doing my research for this conversation, I found out that you were an identical twin. And identical twins fascinate me. So let's start off the conversation with talking about how that has shaped your experience on this earth. Yeah, well, it's fascinating because my my twin brother's name is Dave. He's a product lead or I guess a director of product at Netflix. So we're like very, very different. He's an artist. I I come more from a business background. But I would say that, you know, growing up as a twin was completely wild. I mean, it was, it was, even, even when we were young, we knew that being a twin was kind of like a superpower where you always had a best friend with you. And so we, we like to say we would have a sleepover every night with your best friend because that was, that was the way that it was. But, you know, he and I were troublemakers. We were, you know, notorious in our hometown. We would get into trouble. I could sit here and tell stories for hours about, all the trouble that we would cause. Parents thought that we would be in prison by the time we were 18. Uh, but, but honestly, like, I think the thing about being a twin, at least, you know, my experience of being a twin that was so unique 
is that, and I give my parents a lot of credit, is that even though we're identical and we look a lot alike, they always encouraged us to be our own people. And so that's ultimately, you know, we never wore the same clothing. You know, we, 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 we did have the same clothing, but like different, they always put us in different colors. Um, whereas they, they encourage us to basically seek out our own individuality. And in that, like, that's why we're, like, we're so similar, but we're also so different professionally and, and in our interests. So I would guess like that was the biggest thing is like, you can have someone that shares your DNA, but be so different from them if encouraged to go and explore those differences and passions. Do you have any incredible stories or something that, you know, like you switch places? Is there anything like that that happened? Uh, it's a good question. So we never really switched places, but what we used to do in middle school, and I can't even believe I'm, I'm, I'm saying this live, we used to, uh, when we would break up with someone, we would do it over the phone, like in middle school, where, you know, because who, who, what human likes to tell someone that they no longer want to be with them. And so he used to impersonate me and I used to impersonate him when breaking up with girls. That is yeah. amazing. I'm so and happy our, you shared our, that. Our, our voices are still to this day are completely identical. So even when my father calls me, he's he's now you know almost eighty. He can't tell us apart. He has to like double check that it, it's me before we like dive in because he gets confused. That's hilarious. Oh my yeah. god. Yeah, but it's wild. I mean, having a twin, there's there's nothing like it. There's there's really it, it's funny because. You know, my wife and, and his wife, like they obviously share a bond because they've married. And it's like no matter – it's like you're never going to be as close like as, as your twin, right? It, it just is this bond that is, is really special and, and unique. Have you experienced any like weird moments where you and him are thinking the same thing at the same time? There's no way to explain it. Stuff like that. I've heard, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I would say not that I can recall, but I I think the thing that I definitely uh, experience, especially as we get older, is, you know, if we're stressed or we're having health issues and we share it with each other, you you feel it a little bit more than you would otherwise. Mm, That makes sense. Okay, so let's switch gears here and talk about something that I I actually could spend a whole day talking about. And that is something that you spend a lot of time thinking about as well, and that's coaching. Yes. And I am curious how you got into coaching in general. Yeah, so I've now been coaching, I guess, almost, almost for three years. A little bit more than three years, though I've been interested in it for the past five years and like really, really thought hard hard and long about uh, long and hard about diving into coaching. Yeah, five years ago, I would say. When I so I should back up and say that I'm married to an entrepreneur. Um, She my wife, Eliza, runs a company called The Sill. She started in our apartment in the in the Lower East Side. 
she would come home. And at the time I was, I was a early stage venture capitalist at a, at a fund in New, in New York called Lair Hippo Ventures. They're one of the top seed funds in, in, in the country. And she would come home at the end of every day and open up about all the challenges facing her business. And there were a few things that really struck me. The first was she was obviously completely open kimono about all the challenges she was facing. And it wasn't like, oh, everything like in the boardroom or in the investor updates that I would that I would usually be in. It would be, yeah, everything's great. And we just need some help with like hiring and some intros. But it was never like, oh, like shit's going to hit the fan or we're struggling with all these things or I have no idea what I'm doing. I just I saw this uh, this other side to entrepreneurship. And around the same time, I have way more friends that are founders uh, and, and entrepreneurs. And it would be the same thing when I would get together with them. We'd have these off the record conversations. And it dawned on me that a, I felt like I was having a bigger impact in these conversations but B, I was also getting a lot more energy. And so I remember going to my wife maybe like six years ago and saying, you know, I've been kind of looking into coaching a little bit. I think I might want to become a coach. And she's like, oh, you can totally do that later in life when you retire. And, you know, it's like an old guy's coach. And, and, and I just sort of like filed that away. And then a few years later, and I'm pretty open about this. I found meditation and I decided to live a life, a sober life. And a big part of being sober and is, is obviously personal growth, but also service and being of service to other people. And so through that experience of getting sober and wanting to be of service, I began to actually like think about like, okay, well, what do I value what kind of work do I want to do? Even though, by the way, like work on the investing side was going super well. It was like, is this really what I want to do for the next 10 to 20 years of my life? Because when you're a partner at a firm, you're making these long-term commitments because fun life cycles are 10 plus years. And so ultimately, I was not necessarily like forced, like someone had a gun to my head, but I, was, I, I had to think long-term because that's the nature of venture capital. You have to think long-term. And I just said, you know, I don't think it's giving me the same amount of energy and I'm going to go explore coaching. And by the way, like, you know, I have nearly 20 years of, you know, 10 years of operating experience, 10 years of investing experience. It's not like I'm starting in, I mean, yes, it's a new career and profession, but I can leverage a lot of what I already know and the networks and, and, and in order to like, you know, help me accelerate into a new profession. So anyhow, I'll, I, I've, I've spoken too much, but that's basically how I got into it. It was really a desire to leverage what I've been doing, but in a way that's more service oriented. Was that a difficult decision? Because you had built up an identity as someone and not to say that your identity is completely shifted, but you, whenever you started on a new path, it, it is almost like you're letting go a piece of yourself. Was that difficult to let go a piece of yourself that you've been working for for so long? It was. I'd say that, you know, I think venture investing is one of the most privileged jobs in the in the world. And it's it's one of the greatest jobs in the world. You're basically giving entrepreneurs 
a chance to bring their vision to life. And with that, right, comes there's power and ego and big expense accounts and, you know, all the things that, that, that go with, with being in a power of position like that, uh, a position of power. And what I all, and so I think there were certain elements of, of that, that were, that were difficult to leave behind, but at a certain point in time through my meditation work and working with my own coach, I ultimately just decided that those things weren't as important to me anymore and that I actually could feel more powerful in a role where I was helping other people and, and, and really stepping into that role of supporter. And so it was, it was tough. I mean, listen, like, like any transition, when you're, you're shifting your identity, it's not like you wake up one day and you're like, Oh, I'm going to go and do like, like uh, I'm going to overnight, I'm going to become a coach. It's a gradual process. You know, I, I think back to, this must have been about three and a half years ago, and I, I'm, a, I'm a cyclist, and I love I love going on. I, I don't go on quite as long a rides as I used to, but you know, I was going on a, on a ride. I'll never forget exactly where I was, but I had this epiphany. And this was before I left the investing world, where I was like, I'm going to go, and I'm actually going to shift my identity. And like, it was the moment where I was like. I'm, I'm going to go and be like, actually like pursue this. And it was actually not too far from where I'm living now by the Ashokan reservoir. And to me, like shifting identity is like, if we allow ourselves to accept how, who we are, like in like deeply who we are, but also accept ourselves for not being perfect and not having all the answers and that, and, and so for me, I just stepped into it with an open mind and open heart and like a lot of energy and passion to say like, okay, I'm going to go learn this. And I don't know if this is going to be the right thing for me, right? Like I might go through this training and it's, it's good and like fills me up, but maybe I want to stay an investor. But the more, the more time I spent doing that, it, um, you know, it was very clear that this is what I wanted to do. Mm. When you think about someone who is letting go of their identity or let's say they're fired or they're, they're going into a new stage in their life, what tips would you give them? What practical things would you tell them to do to start going into or leaning into that new identity? Yeah. You know, it's a good – it's something that I've learned from being a coach Um you know, I'm a huge fan of a uh, professor at MIT. His name is uh, Ed Sheen, and he's—I mean—he's a legend. He's written many, many books on on coaching and and organizational development and helping. And he says that there's really like three roles that helpers can can assume. And the first—and I, I will answer your question, I promise—but the first is um, you can assume the role of an expert where you have an opinion and you basically just like you you put it on someone. So this is my advice for you. The second role you can take is that of an expert or sorry, that of a a doctor where you're diagnosing 
a situation and then giving a remedy based on whatever that diagnosis is. And what Sheen calls the third role is a process consultant. And I, I kind of don't like the terminology, but basically what it is to like go in without really with it, with it, no preconceived notions or ideas as to what the right path is and, and through what he calls humble inquiry and just by asking lots of questions not even for yourself, but also for the other person. And so I guess what I would say before I even dive in is, you know, I would first start by asking lots of questions um, to really help myself and most importantly, the other person try to understand like who they are, like what do they value? What do they want to optimize for? What gives them energy? What you know, what could they imagine themselves doing for the next 10 to 20 years? Like, what is their vision, right? Like all these things, like, do they even have a, like, what's your mission? Um, and, and I know that these are a lot of like, you know, what some people might can perceive as like these soft questions, but until you really understand these things, it's hard to really decide. And I find that a lot of people sort of go through life without really asking themselves these more important questions. And what happens is, is you end up in these roles where, you know, like myself, not saying I, I was on the wrong, I was, I'm exactly where I should be. And I walked exactly the path that I needed to get to where I am today. But like, I definitely wasn't nearly as happy when I was in a vent, like institutional venture capital role, making more money than I ever thought I would in my life. Um, but I had to ask myself these questions about like, okay, like who do I want to work with? What values are like all those, anyhow, the, all those things. And so before you can really decide what kind of identity to take on, to evolve into, you know, I think there, there needs to be some introspective to like in, introspection to like who you are as a person and what do you want most and who do you want to become? It reminds me of, I can't remember exactly where I heard it, but the the idea of just asking why over and over and over again and trying to get to the deeper root and deeper root. And, you know, you want, you say you want this. Why do you want that? You say that's the reason. Why is that the reason? And if you keep going deeper and deeper, you start to get the truth. Yeah, you start to get to, to the heart of it. It's interesting because I, you know, before I went and got coached, you know, there's that, the, the five whys, which is a, a, um, you know, it's, it's a technique to try to get to, 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 to the, the, the heart of something. And in, in, in our coaching training, they actually, you know, three plus years ago when I first is that they discouraged us from asking why questions. Mm. And that doesn't mean that I won't ask why questions. I, I just, I, I, I try to use them deliberately because when, people hear the word why it can often put them on the defensive, right? Like, why did you do that? Like my wife would be like, why did you do that? Or why did you do this? And immediately it like creates this visceral, visceral reaction for a lot of people. Um, so to me, I think like I tend to use why questions when I'm trying to understand like the nature of things as opposed to someone's behavior, because I think questions that begin with what and how actually create um, 
they create more introspection and more thought. And I think they activate the right side of the brain more effectively than a why question. That's really interesting. And I think that, you know, when we ask the why questions, it's important to do so with playful curiosity in the sense 100%, of not 100%. trying to, to be, you know, putting the other person down or like you said, and, and that's a really good nuance that uh, I will definitely keep in the back of my mind. You, yeah, you, and and it, 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 the con, and I think the the broader point is that, like anything, the context matters yes. and the situation matters. Absolutely, you've mentioned meditation a few times in this conversation, yeah. and I actually uncovered a post you wrote when you were just fifty days into meditation back in twenty fourteen. Oh, did you really? Yeah, on your website. And you you said you were doing it twice a day for 20 minutes. And I'm curious, this is now six years ago, how your approach has changed over the years. I mean, you're, and you saw in just 50 days of you saying that you've been doing this practice, how much it influenced you in that, in that, that time span. But I'm curious if you've, continued practicing, I assume you have, and how your your thought process has changed around the practice. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I, I totally forgot that I, I wrote about that. You know, it's it's interesting. My meditation practice has evolved significantly over the last six years. Um, I began meditating. I, uh, you know, I got into it because I went away on, on vacation, uh, it was my brother-in-law's wedding and I went to, to France and I remember wanting to read a book and I couldn't find a book and I got recommended the power of now, uh, on my Kindle. And I was just like, Hey, I'm just going to buy it here. It's recommended. And, and it like just completely knocked me on my ass. Wow. And it was one of these books that just changed the way that I thought. And I, it, it occurred to me, I'm not the type of person that lives in the past. I never have been, but I had always been living in, uh, living in the future, mm-hmm. like, and always grasping and, you know, it comes down to like back to my, my addiction and using where I was never in the present. It was always like, oh, I need to go. And, you know, by the end of the day, I need to go get stoned or I need to have a drink. And it was never like, I'm just okay with what is present right now. And so I went, I I got home from that trip and I call my friend Sydney. I was like, Hey Sid, um, I know you have a meditation practice. I would love to learn like not knowing really anything, uh, Danny, like nothing about meditation. She's like a friend of mine is actually coming from the West coast and she's a meditation teacher. She's staying with me for the next week. She gets here tomorrow. Let me put you in touch. So she taught me, um, Vedic meditation, which is effectively like transcendental meditation. It's a mantra based, um, technique where, you're given a word in Sanskrit and basically the whole idea of the practice is you repeat the mantra to yourself over and over and over again until it kind of falls out of the, out of your, your sort of your, your awareness and your attention and awareness. And then the ideas that come back and through doing that over and over and over for 20 minutes, you get into this transcendental state where it feels like you're, 
you know, you know, there's a bunch of different ways to describe it, but some people would say you feel connected to something bigger than yourself. You feel like you're tapped into this great energy force. Mm. Um, it feels restful, peaceful, calm, tranquil, whatever you want to call it. And that was like the first, like I, 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 I was able to hit a transcendent state pretty quickly and then just got hooked. And so for, for almost two years, I think I meditated twice a day for 20 minutes every day, whether I was like hungover uh, or stone, like it, it would like the, the type, the type a person in me really like went into it. And I would say that the next evolution in my practice was, I want to say it was like two years, two and a half years later where I went on a 10 day retreat. Uh, so I, I sat through a, uh, what's known as a Vipassana retreat. Um, and I went away for 10 days. No, you know, basically you're stripped of everything except for your clothes, you know, and you, it, it's a pretty regimented practice where you you wake up every morning at 4.30 a.m. You meditate from five to you know, not nonstop, there's breaks, but you basically meditate 10 hours a day. And then there's a bunch of time, but you don't have your phone or any books or notebooks. And so you're, you're just left to yourself to, to walk and, and think. And that was extremely transformational for me. And, and so leaving that retreat, I basically put down TM and started to practice what's more of like a mindfulness or Vipassana based meditation with also some loving kindness with also known as metta um, meditation. And then that was for, for almost up until January, my practice was for a form of Vipassana. It wasn't as stringent as they, they practice at, on retreat, but it was, you know, it was basically like, you know, obviously following breath and going into my body. And then most recently I started working with a Buddhist teacher who used to be the abbot at the Zen mountain monastery, uh, up, up actually not too far from where I'm living in the Catskills. And he recommended that I read a book called the mind illuminated, uh, which basically is, um, it, it just has completely changed the way that I practice. It's changed the way that my relationship with my mind. And so that that's what's known as a shamatha technique. It's There's some similarities, it feels like, to Vipassana with Anapana, where it's sort of very closely following your breath. But I would say that now... Um, I am practicing usually about 30 minutes, sometimes up to an hour a day. But for me, you know, meditation started out as a way to just get more present. And now I'm using it as a way to just build and cultivate awareness and attention and, and, and really figuring out how can you like, the purpose of this meditation technique and in, in some ways, and I'm probably butchering it, but is really to ensure that you're cultivating a balance at all times between attention and awareness. And it's really, really hard to do because, you know, oftentimes if you focus too much on your breath, you lose your awareness. Or if you focus too much on the things that are happening outside, you know, your thoughts, 
all the noises in the environment, you lose your attention. And so, you know, to me, I, I found that at least in my own life, the purpose of my meditation is to be incredibly aware and fully into my body so that when I'm interacting and having a conversation with, you know, whether it's my wife or a, a coaching partner, I can really be in the moment with them in a way that is, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just, it's about intense presence, but in a way that is somewhat relaxed and not, not forced. Mm. One thing you mentioned just now is you refer to your clients as coaching partners. And I think that's really fascinating. What is the thought process behind calling those you work with coaching partners? Yeah. It's interesting because I was talking with a coach earlier this year and in this coach, I should say he's more than a coach. He runs a really successful coaching network platform, whatever you want to call it. And I remember he was using in, in, you know, they service large, what I'd call like, beyond like growth stage and beyond tech companies up to like fortune 500. And so they, they service a different, um, different client than I do, but he was basically calling it client in engagement. You know, he was using consulting speak to describe the work that we do. Mm -hmm. And to me, it just was like, well, I don't see myself as a consultant. Right. Like I, I see myself as a partner to these. And so, you know, for me, like maybe I, I just have a visceral reaction when you use consulting speak to describe the work that we do. And to me, I view it very much as a partnership because at the end of the day, the work that we're doing is is the, the deep work that's required to create change. And um yeah, yeah, I, I, I think it just comes down to that's the kind of relationship I want to have. Like, I want to I wanna have the relationship where you can text me um, at 8 o'clock at night and, or at 9, when, whenever, and know that you're going to get a response. And I find that, like, the client, it just is, is it feels like a different level of of engagement and relationship. And to me, like when I think about what I, where I want to take high output right now, it's just myself. It's the name of my coaching, uh, my leadership development and coaching practice is like, I very much view it as like, I'm building a hospitality company, right? Like I'm building a, I'm building a potential company, not a coaching company. So to me, like, I think I'm always thinking about like, how can I create a really good experience and build deeper relationships? And to me, if I'm viewing them as a client, then I don't, I don't, I, 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 I think, I think it's very, very deliberate why I'm calling, why I call those I work with partners. It reminds me of the difference between a hierarchical relationship where you're telling someone what to do, if someone's your client, you're 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 talking down to them maybe where versus a peer relationship where you and them are on the same page. They're your friend. They can hit you up. You can hit them up. It's no 
worries and it doesn't matter about what time. And I, I love that you do that. I think it is, is such a beautiful thing. It speaks to your mentality about how you think about those you work with. Well, and to me, like, I think a partnership is symbiotic yes. and, and I'm not saying that other coaches don't view it this way, but you know, to me, I'm going to learn as much as the clients will through working together. You know, some of the people that I'm working with are just so insanely talented and, and, you know, they're smart, they're ambitious, um, they're, they're motivated, right? Like all the, all these things. And so like, I go into it saying like, yeah, we're going to help each other. Like we're both going to grow. We're both going to learn. And so again, that's why another reason why I, I, I rely on the word partner as opposed to client. What are some of the things you've learned or, or what is something that sticks out about something you've learned from one of your coaching partners, someone, a story or, or an instance or something, a trait that you have learned from them that has surprised you, if you hmm. could share. Yeah. Well, I mean, every relationship is so different. Yeah. Um, I don't know if there's like one thing that sort of encapsulates it. I mean, what I would say is that we're all struggling. Mm. Like we all don't have the answers. Right. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking to, you know, today I had a session who he's, he's not a founder. He's a senior level executive at a well-known tech company. And, you know, he's trying to figure out what he wants to do next and, you know, what he wants to do in this role. And even someone that has founded multiple companies and has, you know, really fancy degrees from the top schools in the world, like, he doesn't even he doesn't have the answers and and i think like that's a perfect example and i know there's a little bit of recency bias there but you know just taking him as an example like he doesn't he he doesn't have the answers and you know he's struggling to find the answers and that's why you know he comes to me is so i can help him get a little bit more clarity on like what matters most and what the right road to take. Like this earlier this week, I had a coaching session, with just like a phenomenally talented entrepreneur. And, you know, she's thinking about her roadmap, but not like six to 12 months out, but the next three months. And she came into the session feeling really blocked about what, the right move was and how that's going to impact her team. And, you know, this is someone with really impressive pedigree, um, you know, worked at, you know, some, if, if I had mentioned the companies, like you would, you would absolutely know them. And, you know, by the end of it, we were able to work through it. And so this, this idea that it's okay not to have all the answers, right. And even some of the smartest, most talented, ambitious people can show up 
without any answers and not knowing where to get it. And just by having someone that's there to listen to you and ask questions and to, you know, bring some experience to the forefront, it, you know, you can start to get more clarity. And so that that's what I would say is like, you know, I think we're all, we now live in a world, I think we're seeing less of it, which is like this, you know, crush it culture. And, you know, we are like, can't show any weakness. And, you know, the reality is, is we're all figuring it out as we go. And that's the best part is like, I show up to these sessions, not really knowing what's going to happen. Like I have a sense as to what the topic is and I don't try to go in and fix anything. And, but by the end of it, most of the time where, you know, we, we, there's movement. Do you think that that is because in our society, we don't spend time talking about how we feel inside and what's going on in our head. And by doing one of those sessions, simply saying what is on our mind for an hour allows us to be free in the same way where you can meditate for an hour and be in your head and feel free after a meditation session. Do you think that just simply saying it and getting someone on the, on the phone or getting someone on a call is helpful in and of itself? I do. I do. I, I remember I was talking with a, a, a therapist. This must have been, I don't know, maybe a year and a half ago. And she's a, she's a licensed therapist. And we were talking about the difference between therapy and coaching. And, you know, and, and there are times where I was like, yeah, you know, I, I feel like an imposter because, um, because, you know, I'm not a therapist, even mm -hmm. though sometimes there's, there's work that might kind of blend where there's a gray area. And she said, you know what? And I forget exactly what study she cited, but she said, you know, there's been studies that suggest that, um, that just being able to talk to another human being is like 70, like gets you 70% of the way there. Yeah. And that was about what, where she was like, there's a number of things that actually do require very specific skills, but just the act of talking to someone and expressing, you know, what you're experiencing, your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions, right? Just by doing that, there is a therapeutic element, especially if you trust the other person on the other side. Yes. Right. And that there's that relationship or alliance, whatever you want to call it. And so I do think that's a big part of it is just being able to have someone that you trust and that it, there has to be some level of respect. Right. A lot mm -hmm. of the partner, a lot of the, the, the founders, investors, leaders that, that, that see coaching come to me and they're like, yeah, we love that you're a coach and you're trained and certified and you've been doing that work for close to four years. But we like what we really value as well as your 20 years of experience and all of this context. And, you know, I don't need to go in and tell you about like the kind of business we're in or the various players in our orbit, because you come from this world and you really understand it. Oh, and by the way, you've worked with dozens and dozens of founders in similar positions over the years. You've so that, that there, there needs to be that level of like trust and mutual respect as well. Yeah, that's definitely a huge part of it. And 
you've mentioned before about mastering the craft of coaching and how you're aiming to get 10,000 hours and you said you're you're somewhere between the 1,000 to 2,000 hour mark on your journey. So I'm curious, what have you, what do you think the the three most important traits are, the two or three most important traits for a good coach at your current level of understanding for for what you've been doing because one to two thousand hours is is quite a long time so it it is it is it is um you know i i think here's what i would say i think a big part of it is just getting in reps Hmm. just getting hours in and, and, you know, obviously there's the training, right. And, and training can take a bunch of different forms through reading workshops, certifications, conversations with other coaches. I mean, there's, there's a bunch podcasts. Um, so there, there's a bunch of different ways to learn and more now than ever before. Then there's the reps and there's the actual practice. And to me, I was actually reading this. There's an article in, in the Harvard Business Review that I was reading the other night, which is around like deliberate practice. And, you know, and, and to me, like, yes, the 10,000 hours matter, but it's like if I'm just showing up and I'm not being thoughtful about practice and what I'm actually working on, then how am I going to get better? It's just, I'm kind of doing the same thing over and over and over again. Um, And so it's very similar to like the mind illuminated, the meditation book that I referenced earlier. That's all about deconstructing this technique where you're literally every stage of the process you're cultivating and training and refining a particular skill set that increases the potency of your attention or awareness. And so relating that back to coaching, um, it's really, really, really important to ensure that you're, you're practicing certain skills. And I think there's sort of like two, there's sort of two aspects of it. There's one, which is continuing to refine existing skills that you have. So that could be everything from, you know, asking powerful questions to using metaphors to reflecting back what you're hearing to using certain techniques and knowing when what tools specific tools like maybe i want to work with the client on envisioning the future and you know then there's a bunch of different tools and techniques that i can use to bring someone into a future state depending on what the context is or having them explore their needs and values Right. And there's a bunch. Of, and so the whole idea is like, what are the things that I already know and how do I actually refine those? And then there's a whole class of things, which is like, what are the things I don't know hmm. or the things that I want to learn that are really allowing me to bump up against my edge? And how do I start to like chip away at the edge to create, you know, sort of further and further boundaries of like what I actually know? And I think that's the thing that's challenging about coaching is it's like, it's one thing to go and read a book on it, but like, that's just knowledge, right? Mm. And there's a big difference between knowledge and actually like embodied wisdom. 
Mm. In the old, and and with coaching, it's one of those things where you got to do it. You have to practice it. You have to see, like earlier today, I took I took a partner through. Like I'm not just saying this. Like I took him through this like envisioning the future situation. Um, this like this 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 scenario, and um, like, that's an example where I've done that a bunch of times, but I like at the end of the session, I was reflecting on it and I was like, Oh, I could have asked this question differently. Hmm. Right. And so next time I go and I do that, I'm going to, and so what I'm getting at is there's also a self coaching component. Right. And so, you know, that's also really important to be, being able to master something is like, can you almost like watch tape and, ask yourself, what are the things that you could do differently the next time to actually produce an even more, an even better result and outcome. And then the last thing I would say around the mastery is just surrounding yourself with, you know, other great people that are going to coach and, you know, mentor you and push you and help you find that edge and lean into it. And so, you know, I guess, you know, to come back to the question, because I've been rambling a little bit, Danny, is I think there's a bunch of different things that coaches can do. And for me, it's hard to like sit here and say like, Hey, this is the thing that, but I'd say right now, the thing that I'd say the three things that I'm focused on is just really, really refining. Like I'm about to go through a, a certification with a conscious leadership group, Jim Detmer and Diana Chapman. And I'm just really, really thrilled to go through this. And so for me right now, a lot of the work that I'm doing is about reading you know, sort of three things. It's reading that book again. I'm, I'm going through a training from an organization called Coaches Rising that basically deconstructs. They basically um, videotape the top coaching masters in the world and then deconstruct all these sessions and so I've been spending a lot of time diving into those. And so I guess like, you know, for lack of better, for lack of, of not being able to articulate myself that well, I'm just, I throw myself into it and I let, I let, I'm reading, I'm also reading the book Helping by, by, uh, by Ed Sheen, uh, which is all about the helping profession and how to show up for someone. And, 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 and so the point is, is I just, you know, it's a mix of technique. It's a mix of history. It's a mix of philosophy. It's, you know, it's just sort of taking, letting me go where the energy takes me and then finding ways to actually apply what I'm learning to how I'm showing up for my client, for my partners. Mm, I love that. So you've worked with a coach yourself. You've written about working with Chris Sparks and I'm curious, have you brought anything from that and just use that that you've you've taken from chris and and how has that impacted you oh yeah i mean it's a great question i was actually reflecting on that uh, on on that earlier today because i find that every coach that I've, i've worked with four coaches over the last three years and i find that especially now that i'm a coach every single one i take thing like i i take techniques I, I like it, it's just there's there's things that I like latch on to and there are things that frankly like there are things that Chris does that I would never personally do myself mm-hmm. and that's not a knock on Chris I think he's an amazing coach that's why I pay him a lot of money to coach me 
Um, but like, they're definitely like every single, and, and in fact, it's why now I'm at, I'm on a cadence where I worked, if I think back, um, Andrew Taggart, I worked for with for almost nine months. He's, he doesn't consider him a coach. He's more of what you would call a per- practical philosopher. He's 10 out of 10 off the charts. Brilliant. He's a PhD in philosophy. My buddy Kay, he introduced me to him. To, to Andrew and, and Andrew's just, he, he's, he's a polymath and he's brilliant and he was amazing to work with, but I just got to, he helped me through my transition. So he basically helped me until a year ago. So, I mean, in, insanely valuable, you know, looking back, I didn't pay him enough because, you know, he basically helped me through arguably one of the most chaotic periods of my career. The next coach I worked with uh, was, her name is uh, Elizabeth Wood, uh, Woodbridge, and she is um, she is a like what I would consider like a classically trained coach that doesn't predominantly work with entrepreneurs and come from our world. She's she teaches other coaches, like she's one of the the, the teachers in these big certification programs. So she's a teacher at Coaching Training um, Institute, I believe CTI or Coactive. Uh, training institute i think is what it's called um but like she's more of a classical coach and like very very like doesn't give a lot of advice but the thing is is really powerful i worked with her for six months and six months gained a lot out of it and i was like you know what i think i'm ready for something else and then i i'm now i'm working with chris and i think we're now four months in and i think probably at the end of this sprint you know, like I could see us working together. I could also say like, Hey, I want to go try and try to work with someone else. And because I think like, you know, any, any, any coach I think should be coached, right? Mm. Like it's, it's, um, I think there's a bunch of reasons for that, but one of which is, um, how can you tell someone to pay you lots of money, uh, for this particular kind of service, if you're not willing to, to purchase it for yourself and, and mm. do the work yourself. And so I'm, I'm a big believer that you can only take someone as far as you've gone yourself. And so I love doing the work and I learned so much about from other coaches and how they do their work. Mm. It's really powerful. And, and the thing is about investing in a coach from my experience has been you, you learn from the way to do something, or if, if it doesn't work out, you learn what not to do. So yeah. there, there's a benefit in that as well. If you just are, are thinking about something like that. Um, and so I want to also talk on the question that you have been thinking about, because I think that, you know, you spent four days thinking about this question. So I'm curious about just where you'll take this. And the question that you've been thinking about came from your Twitter recently. It was like, do I continue to embrace the solo multi-career path or go all in on coaching and build something bigger than myself? So I'd love to hear you riff on, on this question for just a little bit. It's, it's the million dollar question right now. So for context, you know, for the audience, I've, I've basically been an army of one for a year. Um, I, I, I have a number of pursuits that I'm currently going after. You know, obviously the one is my is high output, my coaching practice. The second pursuit is uh, I I operate and manage a small 
angel fund that's predominantly my own capital and and capital from friends and friends of friends. It's five million dollars. I've made I've made about twenty plus investments this year uh, in the last fourteen months. And then I run and uh, with with not just myself, but with with a group of contributors, uh, a site called the Founder Library, um, founderlibrary.com. And so by multi-career, multi-career path is I've made a bunch of different bets. And I don't just focus on one thing, but a collection of things though. Like my investing is oscillates between anywhere from 20 to sometimes 50%, sometimes a little bit more, sometimes less. And it's investing less as like an institutional investor, but more as like an advisor and like an unwavering supporter. And and it's just a very, very different engagement. And so I, I did want to create that context because as we head into 20, and by the way, the, like this multi-career path has been amazing. I love it. I think it's, it's so much fun. Um, and, you know, every day is, is, is really is, is different and, and it's great. And I, and, and I have a great quality of life and I live in the woods now in the Catskills with my family and, you know, can basically coach and invest and do everything literally in the middle of nowhere. Right. (laughs) Um, and it's great. Um, but it's lonely, right. And it's just me. And so, you know, what I'm, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm cursed because, uh, you know, I love new ideas and I love thinking about where the world is heading and, you know, it's very clear to me that we're going to see it, it, it just to me that I feel like there's natural evolutions of the coaching business in terms of where it can go. And so the question I'm wrestling with is, do I continue to do bucket one where it's a bunch of different things or bucket two uh, or three, you know, cause I'm sensing a number of paths, like one path that I'm sort of contemplating is building a coaching collective, which is a highly fully distributed organization. That's like truly like a collective in like the, like in the sense where everybody that's in the collective effectively, um, you know, is an owner. Right. And, all decision-making is democratized and everybody pays into a central pool to cover basic like overhead and expenses and that everybody owns it. Right. And so it gives you the benefit of of like working for a company, but with the benefit of being independent. Mm. Um, So, you know, I've been playing with that idea. I've also been playing with, you know, actually going and, and trying to build a coaching practice, actually turn high output or whatever, whatever the, whatever the name would become into something that can scale and, you know, be home to many coaches and, and uh, provide a new level of service to, to people that have a lot of potential. So um, I think right now I'm sort of in, uh, you know, I went away, you know, as Danny hinted on my annual, I do this annual planning uh, retreat every year. And I went away, I, I, I rented a cabin about 20 miles from where I'm living right now in the woods and uh, just spent a lot of time like thinking about, you know, I did a full retrospective and then started looking forward. And I think though, like it's, it, each path is exciting because I be, like, I believe either one, any one of them can be successful. And I also don't believe they're mutually exclusive. Like I think there could be hybrids of it. I do think that one thing 
will happen at least in the next three months is I am going to hire a director of operations, I believe. And so that I'm no longer going to be a, an army of one um, because I, I want to start to scale some of the things that I will, that I'm doing. I want to start to hopefully work with more, more, more partners. And so bringing someone on to just, be a chief of staff or director of operations, whatever you want to call it, I think will help me. And so I think that's the first decision that I've made. But now the question is, is what, what path does it, does it ultimately morph into? And the good news is, is I don't feel like I need to have any answers or decisions. It's just like, I, I, I'd rather for, I'd rather sense what the right path is over time than try to force it. Like, Oh, I made this decision. I'm going all in. Like I, I, I emerged from this planning session just saying, like, I'm actually just going to like be really present and mm. like sense what the right path is as opposed to like picking a path. And because if I'm patient, it's going to be very clear what the right one to take is. And so I know it's a little, probably a little like woo woo for some sad. people. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it I, I find that I find that that's the only way to do it. I, I, you know, it's like tomorrow I'll have more information than I had today. And in two weeks at the end at, in the new year, I'll have even more information. And so it's just it's rather than trying to view everything as like so monolithic and like, and, and, and permanent, just view it as like this constant unfolding where it's all, everything's unfolding always. And so it's like, how do I sort of realize that and sort of the microcosm that's my, my career and profession and business. I like to think about it like we are watching a movie in our head of of the character. And it's like if you just keep watching the movie, you'll see things develop that you never could have predicted before. So yeah. I, that's kind of how it, I like to think about it. It's, 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 you know, I used this analogy on Twitter last week, which is um, you, you know, it's like at any given time you have a series of doors that are in front of you and those doors can be like networks opportunities ideas skills and the idea is like when you open up a door you're then opening up a whole new set of doors to eventually walk through right and the point is is that there's no right perfect door there's just a door and when you walk through that you learn and you observe and you're like, okay, well, where am I now? Oh, like I'm, I'm here <laughs> then. Right. And so I think like viewing this as like a constant unfolding where it's like, I'm just going to get a series of doors and rather than optimizing and saying, I have to pick the right one. It's like, you know, I think about like the moonlighter or like, I think about the people that like, you know, are sitting in a corporate job, like, oh, I really want to start a company, like, but I'd have to quit my job and go do this. And it's like, well, actually, there's a bunch of doors you could walk through right now. Right. And 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 one one door is quit your job. Another one is how do you turn this into a side hustle? Like I have a buddy who has a corporate job and just launched a vacation rental site and business on top of airbnb and some others and like he's gonna build passive info and it's not like that took him two days to build like 
nights and weekends and, you know, real investment, but, you know, he ultimately decided that. So the point is, is that like, there's all these opportunities available to us. And, you know, rather than seeing it as like the right one or the perfect one, it's just, you know, let's take, let's take a step in that direction and see where I end up. It's so interesting because I think sometimes we, we think about it like there are so many doors and today we're in a world of abundance where there's so many options and that can be overwhelming. But by the same token, I also feel sometimes we view just as if there's only two options or if there's only one option that we have to do. And it's like right. never that way. So it's, I know well, it's, 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 you know, it's, it, it's funny because like, you know, in the corporate world, like you hire McKinsey and they come and they present to you and they present like three options. And in, in, in my, in, in my coaching training, you know, three years ago, you know, it was always, there's this, um, there's a, there's a, a technique that, you know, basically it's brainstorming, but they called it expanding the view where it's like working with a partner to like, start to like brainstorm and see that there's way more possible, you know, whether it's options, perspectives, um, reframes, like all these different things. And, and there's this, all these exercises that you can do. But what I always find is that our brains always reduce like those paths that I even presented earlier, where I was like, I see three paths emerging, but the reality is, is like, you know, in those three paths, there's, you know, there's, I mean, I can't even, I'm not smart enough to even figure out how many of them there are. Yeah. I I know exactly what you're talking about. So you touched on the annual review briefly before, and I'd love for you to expand on why you created this. This is such a useful document that I shared in my newsletter. And I think a lot of people responded like, this is incredible. This is crazy. Thank you so much for sharing. So clearly very beneficial, clearly a need for it. How did you create this? What was going through your mind when you put this out there? Take us through your your thought process. Yeah. So I've been doing a an annual review, let's see, about five years. And two years ago, I decided to write a blog post because you know, I had shared it with a number of friends and clients and they were like, Oh my God, this thing is incredible. You like, you should write a blog post. And at the time my daughter was just born and I basically was like, she was born in November. I was like, you know, I really want to post this, but I don't know if I, and I was like literally working at night and like sleep deprived. And finally I pushed it out. And what it basically, what it is, is it's a five, it's like five distinct exercises under one. And so, you know, if, for those that are listening, it's uh, annualreview.life is the domain. I, I turned the blog post into its own microsite where you can download the templates for free. And, and basically what it is, is it's this five-stage process to help people reflect on the previous year and start to determine, you know, set intentions for, for next year and then start to actually take action. And Part of the thing that always struck me is like everybody, um, not everybody, but many people create New Year's resolutions, but oftentimes people don't stick to them, right? It's like, oh, I'm going to lose 10 pounds and then you're sort of January 15th and NFL playoffs roll around and it's like, um, you know, and so, but you get the point, like, you know, it's like everybody 
at the end of the year is like, oh, it's a new year. I'm going to start new. And then, you know, come January 31st, it's sort of like that in to many, right? If you look at the statistics, it's like the majority of these things don't stick. And so for me, I was like, well, you know, why is that? And is there a way for me to help people make a little bit more progress towards that? And so the five steps, the first one is, you know, what I call moments and milestones. So it's basically helping people deconstruct their year on a timeline. And so it's everything from um, highlights, lowlights, peak moments, um, memories, uh, it can be really anything that, that you want. And so in the, in the, in the review, I encourage people to, you know, look at their calendar and their photo album and social media and to really like get a sense as to like what happened in the year, you know, obviously 2020 has been a difficult year for so many. Um, and so, so then the second phase is actually, um, really starting to, um, to reflect on the year. And so that's diving into successes and failures and relationships. And you know, each section has or say six, six or so questions. And so it's meant to go deep. And then once you sort of con- conduct that, like even things like what gave me energy, what drained me, what were the things that I wanted to get done that I didn't, um, you know, all these things. And then the, the, the third phase of it is to uh, actually take a current inventory across and, and, and basically place a value on, you know, I think it's the 10, 10 different dimensions of your life. So it's things like health and relationships and spirituality and career and money and so on and so forth. And, and the reason why I wanted to create a current snapshot is like, it, it makes I think it makes sense is where you do your look back where it's like, okay, this is where I've come. This is where I am right now and across all these areas. And then you start to can say, okay, well, based on this, how do I want to start thinking about next year? And then the fourth phase is around all intention setting. So it's like, what do I want to accomplish? What kind of relationships do I want to have? And it takes the, the, the user through that journey of really thinking deeply about what they want to get out. And then finally, the, the, the fifth stage is next steps and action. And to me, I think it's less focused on where do you want to be like really at the end of the year, even though that's part of the intention setting. But it's like, what are the first steps that you need to take, right? Like, where do you want to be in 30, 60, 90 days? Like, what are literally the first things you can do? Who can help you? Like, what resources do you need? And so it tries to like distill it into, you know, like initial actionable steps and like break it down into a way that like starts to be a little bit more specific and time bound. It's such a intentional way to start the year, as opposed to just writing down, these are my resolutions. You're really being intentional about every moment and intentional about everything you've done and intentional about where you want to go in the future. And I love that aspect of it. And I'm halfway through it right now and I can't recommend it it's, enough. It's, it's, a, it's a beast. And, uh, you know, I, I shared it with a friend who's an incredible coach, uh, my buddy Sunil. And his reaction was, wow, this is a lot. Right? <laughs> and I said, like, listen, like, you know, it, it it's designed to be a lot. 
right? And, and those that, that do it are going to get the most out of it. And, um, it's not meant to be easy. And, you know, there, there are plenty of amazing annual reviews that are, that are shorter, but this is meant to, to have a certain level of depth. Now that said, there are people that have asked me to add things to it. And I purposely have not because I don't want it to be longer than it is now. Like the, I think the reason why I do this is like, is because of the emails and the things that I'm like, I got an email last year. I can't wait to, to hear what I like the impact that it creates this year. But last year I got an email from a, from a gentleman that says I'm a repeat founder. Um, I have, I don't have a great relationship with my son. He's now um, 12 years old. He's obese. Um, He, we don't, you know, we don't have a great relationship um, he's obsessed with video games. It's all he does is play video games. And he said he walked into my office a few days ago and saw your blog on my computer screen. And he asked me what it was. And I told him, and he said, wow, that that's incredible. Can we do it together? Oh my God. And he did the review with his son, uh, over, you know, the holidays and basically the outcome of them doing it together was that they were going to start to spend more time together. So beautiful, And like man. Getting, getting, getting that email was like, that made the whole, like all the effort and putting this out there worth it. It just goes to show about sharing on the internet. That's just I a know. beautiful story. You don't know what is going to happen from putting this interview out into the world. You don't know what is going to happen when, when you put what's in your heart and what's in your head into the internet you cannot know you don't you, you can't, can't predict it I could, and that's okay I could never i could never have told you that that and and you know what like i've gotten over a hundred i mean i can't even count the amount of emails i've gotten about this review but that one was like i mean just completely blew blew my my lid off absolutely amazing i think that's a, an incredible place to wrap it up yeah and and do you have anything else before we we go to the the ending notes? Is there anything else you want to mention before? No, we... this was this was fun. Listen, I I really admire your work. I uh, you, you have you have a gift for this, and you know I I I was on David Perel's podcast. I want to say like two or three years ago, and like I knew that David was destined for just amazing things and obviously he's taken off and you know I, I i expect and and believe the same will will happen to you so i can't wait to see it and and i can i can tell everyone that i was on your your podcast before it was was one of the big ones well i really appreciate that where can people find you on the internet my man uh you can find me i think the easiest place to start is just twitter I'm, I'm at Schlaff, S-C-H-L-A-F is in Frank. Um, that's the the probably the best place to start. Thank you, Steve. I really appreciate your time. Yeah. Beautiful people, we are back. And that was my conversation with Steve Schlaffman. If you enjoyed it, let me know on Twitter, at HeyDannyMiranda. And if you're still listening until this moment, you might as well take the time to sign up to my free weekly newsletter that's Tuesday Treasure where I just find the coolest things every week and send them directly to your inbox. You could find that 
at dannymiranda.com slash Tuesday. That's all for me for today. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening until the final seconds. I appreciate you more than you know, and I'll see you in the next one. Peace.